This month's Where Did the Road Go is sponsored by three awesome people. Ellison Cook, Super Inframan, and 36 Dingo. If you want to help support the show, become a Patreon at wheredidtheroadgo.com. You get extra stuff all month, shows a week early, and much, much more. And now our show. Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Welcome to this edition of Where Did the Road Go? And tonight we're going to be talking about Lovecraft, the yellow sign, or the yellow, the, the king in yellow, the yellow sign, and things like that, and other weirdness. And I have with me Walter Bosley. Yes, good to be here. Christopher Ernst. Hello, also good to be here. Super Inframan. Hello, hello. And Taylor, who hasn't been with us in way too long. <laughs> hello, I am here. <laughs> and it was actually your idea, Taylor. Yep. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I came up with the idea and then show up late to uh, to the show. I suggested. <laughs> That's all right. So um, I don't even know where to start with all this stuff. This stuff has had uh, such a massive influence on culture in our society, and I don't think a lot of people really understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Lovecraft at his time was not well known, but now it, it's like infiltrated everywhere. But it doesn't start with Lovecraft, right? It doesn't. I mean, there no weird fiction and, and that kind of thing has sort of evolved in that milieu of you know of, of lovecraft and robert w chambers you know and ambrose bierce and, and these other writers who who were kind of i mean some of them were corresponding with each other and sharing ideas and kind of coming up with these things together um the thing i always hear, hear about lovecraft is that he was writing from inspiration from his dreams or, or nightmares yeah um but it's I think I think there's something more primal about it, uh, about the fear that comes from cosmic horror that predates even the stuff that was written about it. Right, and I think that's kind of what, in many ways, Grant picked up on when he sort of helped along this uh, incorporation or re-recognizing of these uh, currents into his, if people are not familiar with Kenneth Grant, he was sort of the person who picked up from Crowley in many ways, uh, or, or uh, picked up that thread and was writing a bunch of books on it and um, uh, trying to practice in uh, uh, the UK. And he really brought the Lovecraft mythos. And maybe there's some other stuff you all want to ch- chime in here about it. But for me, at least, that was the first place where I saw it legitimately be sort of um, uh, uh, thought of or recognized as crazy as people might think Kenneth Grant is into a, you know, a, a real mythos uh, that is part of a, uh, like, you know, uh, an existential structure, uh, and a supernatural structure. Um, yeah. I always thought mm-hmm. Kenneth Grant was fascinating. Uh, I loved reading his books, but some of the books would just end up with like pages and pages of crazy correspondences. It's yeah. like, Oh, this equals this number and this number oh, equals yeah. this. And yeah. then equal, yeah. you're like, absolutely okay i think you're taking this a little too far and that's the i think that's the problem or or at least that's the problem i have with kenneth grant yeah 
But when it, when he writes yeah. about a lot of the other stuff, I mean, especially um, what's the one where he actually talks about like Crowley and Dion Fortune and uh, the magic oh, magical something. I don't I, know. I can't. Remember I'm not sure on that one. But not, anyway, not I mean, magical. that's yeah. that's good as a historical sort of like overview of of different magical, you know, different magicians. Okay, I'm sure I can find that, it. That here. correspondences thing is sort of a problem in in a lot of. A lot of ceremonial magic, uh, you know, especially when you're talking to people who are having their own experiences, and you know, the 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 synchronicity thing can kind of do that too, where you just start pulling on these threads and connections, and they make sense. You know, they might make sense in your head or or at the at the time, but when you write them all down, you know, if someone else is reading them, they they might not be as poignant. It's mm-hmm. it's called the magical revival. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's okay. what I thought. Yeah, that's right. So that that yeah, that, to, that that one is absolutely must read as far as like magic stuff goes. And it was interesting. You he know, was another person too that ended up bringing. Uh, I just wanted to point out this other connection in there that later in his life he brought a lot of uh, Hindu uh, tantra very specifically into yeah. it. I know that Crow- Crowley did too, but that was definitely one of the reasons why I started to to read him. And you can find the magical revival right now on Etsy of all places for twenty two dollars. Oh, usually it goes for hundreds, if not thousands. Oh, wow. Wow. Interesting. So, Walter? Uh, I was just going to comment on uh, when he said, um, you know, when you you share something with somebody else, it doesn't seem to come across, you know, conveying the same, I don't know if urgency is the right word, gravitas or whatever. And and it made me think of, uh, you know, kind of the built-in quality with um, experiences of high strangeness, how in the telling it loses something and almost yep. as if that's engineered on purpose because <laughs> classic you're not really supposed to it, it, it's a it's it's either you're not really supposed to tell it or the person needs to experience it themselves you're not the same thing is not going to be conveyed yeah. in the mere hearing it it's you have to experience it yourself and that's yep. where you know this is the big this is where the big um uh, gap between atheists and those who believe in God. Uh, this explains that same gap. It's, you know, people with real faith, not just, you know, churchianity type faith, you know, lip service faith, people who really believe in this. It, it's, uh, you know, pretty much most of the time they've had some experience yeah. that has convinced them. And, you know, you can't fault the, the, the person who's identifying as an atheist because if they haven't had that experience, they're, it's based entirely on logic, which right. there's nothing evil about that. It's just the way it is. And, and I think that's the way that the, uh, the other side of the veil works on us, the, the denizens and the beings and the intelligences on the other side of what we call the other side of the veil work. They do this on purpose. I, I think it's engineered. Mm-hmm. My, yeah. I think it's Mike Cleland who liked the the quote. One one of the, one experiencer was told, "We want you to believe, but not too much." Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I think that was Mike Cleland. I love that quote. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that really is how it feels, especially when you're in it, right? And you're having those experiences. <laughs> exactly, yeah. and that's why you come away. You know, um, I've found that, that my most intensely real experiences with the weird stuff, I've come away with a very calm, peaceful um, position of, eh, I don't really care if people don't believe me or not. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I know it's real. Yeah. I know I had the experience. I now know yeah. these things are real. And it's, wow, I 
I have no desire to really do any kind of hard sell on my experiences. I'll share them. But, you know, if I'm up against the real hard skeptic, it's like, hey, it's cool, man. You know? Right. Yeah. yeah. I think Whatever. in a lot of ways, I'm more interested in listening to somebody who's had experiences like that, who is willing to share, because that, that seems, at least to me, more um, valuable, I guess, than somebody mm-hmm. who's, who's going around telling everybody well, about their experiences. Yeah, it's because you're the kind of person that it's not like casting pearls before swine. It's it's, you're truly interested. You're open to hearing it and you take it somewhat seriously. You know, that's why I think it does make me think of the, you know, this notion of the Aeon of Horus um, that that Crowley, uh, you know, would talk about uh, and how it that it was um, the the what's a good way of sort of uh, summing up what the aeon of horus is well i mean there's the idea of individuality and finding the true will um but i think that the, you know part of that true will and again i am not a thelemite and i know that there are people out there who are you know practice this as a religion so i i might if i'm stumbling over sort of the tenets of it uh forgive me but I I interpret that in many ways as there being this sort of shift to intuition, um, uh, you know, this idea of a different type of knowing or, uh, yeah, an additional type and a type of knowing that is not based upon logic. Uh, and it's something, too, that I've found like the 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 yogis and the uh, the, the Sufi um, uh, mystics that I've had sort of interaction with um, uh, or, you know, um, education in. That was something that they spoke about a lot uh, in their their own different way. There being this shift at this particular time, and I do wonder, like one of the things that I've thought about in terms of Lovecraft, and even you know uh, Ambrose Bierce and um, uh, uh, Chambers, and you know some of these writers that were starting that you know those these first uh, uh, moments of cosmic weird and cosmic horror. Is if there is this, you know, if there is this sort of current or explosion uh, that is happening in the Akashic field or, you know, the collective unconscious or the spirit world or whatever you want to call it, you know, you have these different people that have different uh, almost, uh, you know, you are, people are aligned in different ways to pick it up. And you get somebody like Lovecraft who's picking up, you know, in his dreams some sort of uh, shift or current or truth. Uh, that is, you know, being filtered through him and uh, in this very strong way that comes out. It's getting filtered through other people in different ways. So it's getting filtered through, you know, um, uh, different writers. And this makes me think of, you know, this idea of the muses um, uh, in, in a very sort of classical way. And and uh, I don't know if this is, I know that there's some sort of, uh, um, uh, there are different, uh, <laughs> different writers and different, uh, like, lyric poets claim different, uh, parentage for uh the muses but there's always this idea of memory being involved with the muses so you know it does make me think and i know these are very speculative connections that i'm making here but this idea of there being something some type of knowledge that is you know uh, a different way of knowing not logical that is like seeping through and that uh different people are picking up with a different amount of uh accuracy like a a really strong receiver will pick it up and then it gets filtered back out into sort of our waking world 
Right, right. Yeah. Well, you know, I've talked about this a couple of times. You and I have actually, Chris, too. Like, you know, I thought Howard uh, was virtually channeling a lot of his writing. Right. And uh, he and Lovecraft, Doc Smith that did the Lensman cycle, uh, I, you know, they, it seemed like they were tapped into something different. Um, but I think I don't want to say that what Lovecraft was doing or was channeled per se, because I think it's it's a much higher abstract idea than that. But uh, sure. something about all of these guys is very interesting in how they were pulling this stuff out of the ether or how it was coming down to them. Right. Well, Lovecraft is like, I, I, this is how I think of his sort of, you know, I mean, the, the racism that was obvious, you know, for the time or maybe his closeted uh, queerness or whatever he was going through that, like, you get the filter through that and that something about the otherness that is, you know, he internalized, has this internal hatred for, or, you know, this, um, these, these prejudices, these hatreds, these feelings, um, it's exacerbated and comes out in a much darker way than maybe it came out for, I don't know, the way Crowley was interpreting it or something. Mm -hmm. But there is still like staring into the void at the same time, which, you know, uh, in, in any case is going to be, you know, the, the infinite abyss of knowledge maybe uh uh terrifying no matter what and also so that's Crowley, sorry Crowley that's, that's go ahead <laughs> that's just it though right that that terrifying abyss of knowledge you know i think that that's where the horror of of weird horror comes from or cosmic horror comes from it's that it's feeling yeah. that that yeah. gnosis or you know filtering down whatever whatever it is that knowledge that they're that they're you know tapping into and then being afraid of it because that essence uh, that that experience is so different from the logic of the time is you know is so different from the the rationality the you know the very like miskatonic you know uh write everything down catalog it and put it in a library kind of kind of mentality the 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 cosmic doesn't let you do that and that's a that's sort of a terrifying discrepancy <laughs> well and, and also remember crowley uh would describe mag you know his his work as uh the aim of religion with the methods of science so he he didn't yep. throw science out of the equation yep you know logic and science were important to him too he was just trying to you know look at the stuff that that stuff wasn't looking at right and it's a it's a dichotomy that I think is natural in humanity, right? It's it's sort of a, a a a duel between the different aspects of ourselves, the you know the logical and the um, sensational, right? And and by sensational, I mean like the sensate, right? Like the 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 native things, the things that make sense to ourselves without without needing to think about it. Yeah. Does that make sense? That that yeah, sounded yeah, yeah. weird. Okay. Um. So let, let, let's go back to uh, the King in Yellow. Yep. And who wants to ex explain to anyone who's not familiar with the King in Yellow what that is? Uh, I could give a, a brief rundown. All right. Um, so it started as a book of short stories. I think it may have its roots uh, somewhere else as well. But um, Robert W. Chambers wrote a book called The King in Yellow, which is sort of a bunch of short stories uh, about different people and happenings that kind of all revolve around this concept of uh, – I mean, it, it's it's sort of hard to pin it down exactly, but there's this play called The King in Yellow, which these people in this story are sort of um, – are, are sort of revolving around. They're sort of partaking of, they're reading it, or they're um, or they're experiencing the world sort of in light of it. And the play itself um, 
is supposed to be sort of this this absolutely mind-bendingly um, crazy experience. I think the, the thing I've always heard is is you know if you you watch the the first act, it's super weird. But if you stay for the second act, then you go insane. That's I don't know if that's actually from the book. That's something I've heard. Uh, but the king in yellow. As an idea, um, you know, we, we talk about it as being like a king, right? So it sort of gets personified through that, but it's really not uh, a personage. It's it's more of a, a concept of, um, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that insanity of um, of knowledge and gnosis through the experience of art. Right. Um, that's kind of how I see it. Chris, do you want to? Oh yeah, I mean, I think that's you know very well sums it up. I mean, the 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 stories, the way that it's put together, um, is that you have essentially these these stories in the very uh, front of it, like the first half of the book, uh, are these kind of discrete. Uh, the first four, in particular, short stories that all revolve around, you know, they're they're almost in in some ways these morality plays, uh, you know, of people making these choices where then the uh, the 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 repercussions of which come back and the this figure of the king in yellow and the yellow sign and this play all uh embody you know in many ways this sort of embodiment of that that the the insanity of uh of of cosmic horror and death in similar ways to pose mask of red death um but yeah and then after that it's 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 interesting because i feel like you know Sometimes for me, the other stories after that, because then after those first uh, few stories, there's uh, like a sequence of these prose poems and uh, then these uh, sort of romantic stories about bohemians in Paris um, uh, that make up the last four. And I almost feel like there's something maybe even much more coded in those stories that mm-hmm. I haven't cracked yet. Um, yeah, but yeah. it's it's uh, uh, it's it's it's. In many ways, kind of, I don't want to say it's a, it's a romantic prose, but there is this tinge of weirdness to it that is uh, really uh, unique. And it, 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 it uh, you know, along with the Am- Ambrose Bierce, who uh, this other author that I, uh, uh, um, Bosley, will, can talk much more about, uh, I'm, I'm sure, that he, he has his own uh, uh, mythos, this idea that came from his uh, story, An Inhabitant in Car- of Carcosa. And these m- motifs show up again as part of the King in Yellow, um, as you know, these be- basically these speculative places, the city of Carcosa and the Lake of Holly and Hastur. Um, uh, these all come from uh, Ambrose Bierce, and then they were reworked into uh, the the King in Yellow. So it's it, and then these were further reworked into the Lovecraft mythos. Um, so it's mm-hmm. both almost you know it's one of the catalysts, but it's not quite the first uh, as far as I. I see it. Yeah, it's it's uh, off of that. What I want to say is that um, uh, I am I've been much more familiar with the um, extraordinary impact that Chambers' uh, work has had on uh, weird fiction and horror fiction and such. Uh, after him, I mean, throughout the 20th century or most of the 20th century. Um, you know, of course, Lovecraft and all sorts of other writers um, were directly influenced by The King in Yellow, and um, not the least of which was Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, 
Yes, um, yeah. in his Dracula novel, you go through most of the novel before, or a big chunk of the novel before you even meet Dracula himself. He's talked about by other characters off stage, and the Yellow King, much the same way. Uh, you know, you really Absolutely. Yeah. most of that work, you you don't. In fact, I'm trying to remember if at all you really encounter the Yellow King himself. What you what you get are is the testimony of others, and this yep. became. Uh, uh, a uh, a device that well Bram Stoker obviously used it Stephen King used it in Salem's Lot where you know you don't meet Barlow the king vampire in his story until deep into the the novel they don't even mention the word vampire in any other story um, after Chambers that you read that you see that device um, they owe it to Chambers um, Yellow King um, absolutely but, but uh, I, I think another part you. Because what you were saying about not really understanding, I think perhaps one of the biggest mysteries in literature, you, you kind of hit on it, is do we really understand um, the king in yellow? Mm-hmm. You know, and I like what you said about something's embedded in there. Um, I, I lean toward that possibility. I think we have yet to unlock the, the mystery of Chambers, King in Yellow. Um, and, and therefore, if that is the case, what the hell was he trying to tell us? What inspired <laughs> this that, um, you know, the son of a lawyer, I believe his dad was a lawyer, you know, very down to earth profession, that kind of thing. Um, it, it, you know, what possessed him, so to speak, that, you know, he produced this, the, the singular work that makes him talked about to this day, you know, 150 years later or something. Right. Not quite 150 years later. But, um, and then of course, yeah, you're right. Um, what, what was, what was Ambrose Bierce saying that was Chambers just a fan of Ambrose Bierce? Cause he was a famous guy at that time. Is that where, you know, the use of Carcosa came in or was there something more there that did did Bierce get a glimpse, okay, of the things that Chambers was trying to tell us, you right, know, right. Uh, in the King in Yellow, and therefore did did Crowley um, also get a glimpse of it, or associates of his, um, and 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 likewise with Lovecraft and Parsons, you know, did they understand, hmm. you know, that, what Chambers was talking about? That's kind of why I like the concept of these currents, right? Where, mm-hmm. you know, contemporary uh, people are uh, contemporaneously picking up on this sort of feeling that's coming around. And, you know, they also inspire each other. And, and sure, so, you know, someone's work becomes someone else's muse, but they, they're getting at this deeper thing and then, mm-hmm. and then building it together, which is fascinating. And you don't see it much anymore with, like this, this idea of, um, you know, somebody like like um, Chambers building off these ideas of, you know, like Holly or Carcosa or whatever, and then and then creating this, you know, this whole sort of opus, and then that going on to inspire a, a myriad of, of other works out there, even to this day. Oh yeah, I was yeah. just looking at the well, just a quick interjection. I was just yeah. looking at the uh, the these. Um, the map of uh, uh, the the worlds of um, the Jar Jar Martin um, universe, and you know, in the far far east, 
there is the there is the lake of holly and the city of carcosa within which the uh the the <laughs> yellow king resides you know this is a part of the myth the mythos of george r r martin like it's it is it is embedded everywhere nobody yeah. is is untouched right. by this but but for what little we see it remember george r r martin look at his age too he's he's in that generation that was most definitely yes. influenced yes. by chambers and lovecraft and all that but maybe we're not seeing it in literature now so much as we that it 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 shifted to film yeah. it shifted to music oh yeah nah, um, yeah it and 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 then I wonder what thing has wanted to reveal itself, or I think even more appropriate, more accurate, um, what thing out there, what entity, what intelligence is has used literature and now film and music to uh, um, uh, spread its presence and its influence. It is right. very interesting that you know. Uh, when the the film that I made, uh, uh, which is called um, Corpse, is this sort of it's almost like an exegesis of the King in Yellow through mm. the the lens of um, experimental like '60s post-structuralist film. So it's, it's you know it's a very much an acquired taste, but mm. it's uh, it I had the sort of idea to do that, and I started working on it with my writing partner Bill Darman when uh, this was about a year before. True Detective came out, and you know this mm-hmm. was a completely independent film, so it took us a lot longer to get it out than it, um, True Detective. But I was really blown away when I that first because I wasn't aware of that uh, because I completely independently, and this is also around the time that I was starting to really dive into a p- particular types of um, uh, uh, workings in m- more in sort of I would say the chaos magic realm, but. Um, uh, so it it was absolutely I was calling out for a uh, inspired uh, sort of text that I could take and you know re rework and reexamine um, you know almost in the way that somebody would take like the myth of Orpheus and try mm-hmm. to work with it artistically. Uh, mm-hmm. But it came. To, I mean, and it must have got you know Pizzola. Nick Pizzolatto must have gotten that. Uh, is that his name? Am I pronouncing that correct? Yeah, Pizzolatto. Yeah, yeah. Pizzolatto. Um, you know, he must have gotten that too. It's not something that, uh, uh, you know, I take very lightly. It's quite strange. Well, yeah, you know, um, on, on the true detective issue, now that you've brought it up, um, <laughs> uh, you, you guys know with my empire, the will research and other things, I'm, I'm right. one of those who suspects that, um, there are some dark shenanigans that go on out there on a high level. And, um, you know, humor me on this, if you will. But um, I recall when season two came out, the first episode had blatant Hecate associations. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. You know, the, uh, you know, that retreat place that uh, Rachel Adams, uh, Robert Morse plays Rachel Adams' father in, in season two. And he's kind of the aging hippie guy. And a lot of the a lot of the plot dates back to you know his hippie associates. Well, the uh, the the, um, the retreat uh, center, kind of like an Esalen Academy kind of thing, you know, the, the the hippie retreat center that he owns and runs. I can never pronounce it. Remember, it begins with a P, but it's named after an ancient city state in ancient times, which was known for its veneration 
of Hecate. It's worship of Hecate. In other words, you look it up and boom, Hecate's at the forefront. So here, so here you have uh, Hecate symbolism, and then the bit with the the, the first uh, murder victim in the beginning with uh, I, I think he's is it literally coins or something? You know, on its eye. it it started out like wow, okay. If you thought the eeriness with the king and yellow symbolism and synchronicity in the first season was something, this one's starting out, you know, on the same track. And then, of course, we know what happened. We know that after that, it just didn't deliver, and it, you know, on on any of this stuff. And then, in the, and people were disappointed. And then the third season was a big Scooby Doo. You know, it hinted at maybe it was going to. So the, I'm I'm sitting there looking at this, going, "Now wait a minute, how did he come out with the first season that he came out with? Which, by the way, was partially based upon actual um, crimes that happened at a church." Mm-hmm. Uh, in Louisiana, okay, that's in some of the making of stuff it's referred to. So I refer the listener to that. Um, so I, you know, thinking conspiratorially, just for fun, I wonder if what he, what his research that led to season one, I wonder if somehow he got away with getting season one aired and somebody did not like um, in the real world somebody did not like where it was going mm-hmm. and what it was insinuating and i'm wondering if they came in and said no season two will not be about the continued pursuit of some de- and think about it this is shortly before the exposure of the whole epstein thing and mm-hmm. and it, it, you know um and so i think I, I mean, I wonder, I wonder if the reason the next two seasons were such, you know, duds, let's be honest, in comparison to season one, and particularly where this particular stuff is concerned, I wonder if it's because he wasn't allowed to um, follow up where yeah. the first season was taking us. Now, what's interesting is I mentioned before we start tonight, the fourth season, here's what we know about it so far. It takes place in Alaska. Now, us fans of season one, uh, that should jump out at you because twice in season one, Rust Cole refers to that when he was a kid living in Alaska with his dad. And then remember, after the initial case, when he and Marty have their falling out, when they realize they didn't get the Yellow King, they got Reggie Ledoux, but they didn't get the Yellow King and they have their falling out and Rust quits. Remember what he tells Marty? He returned to Alaska for quite a while. Right. Yeah. What the hell was, and here season four is going to be in Alaska. I'm telling you, and Nick Pizzolatto allegedly has nothing to do with the season, but I'm telling you, if the fourth season takes place in Alaska and it has nothing to do or doesn't resemble the first season, then they're punking us, <laughs> you know, um, but it, it, it gives me hope for the fourth season. But honestly, I, I wonder particularly in light of we're never going to see the actual perp list, right? Um, we know the whole Epstein thing and, and what did and did not happen to him and on and so forth. And all the distractions they give, you know, uh, you know, we're allowed to know every detail of, of Johnny and Amber's divorce, but we can't know who was on, you know, Ghislaine's, Ghislaine's uh, you know, list. Um, yeah. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if Pizzolatto really uncovered something real and, and after he got away with season one, but it scared them too much and they put the clamp down on it. I just well, wonder. I'll throw it out. It's so much. It's so much of the plot of what, of, uh, what uh, Cole is, is uncovering in season one, right? Like with all yeah. of the, the churches and all the everything that's going on with uh, 
you have the children and, and, right. and you know it yeah it's just it's just a little too close to you know stuff and and let's be honest here some some of the stuff that could have inspired it that you know in the direction he went had already been exposed i mean there yep. was the franklin scandal of the 80s there was um the guy at penn state there's been other things there's been all sorts of reasons and and you know it's just interesting how the epstein thing exploded not long after season one yeah 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 yeah. But I, I do love, I do love Pizzolatto's nod to the Call of Cthulhu um, throughout the season. And in particular, if you guys are familiar with the silent movie version that the Lovecraft Historical yeah. Society did, oh, Call yeah. of Cthulhu. Yep, absolutely. If, if you recall, when the policeman is interrogating the cult member that they captured, go back and look at the scene, the, the wonderful scene with Rust and the guy who says, I can tell you about the Yellow King. I know about the Yellow King. And when he smacks him around, um, that scene is so similar to the one in the silent film where they're inter- the cop is interrogating the cult member and he's saying, the Yellow King, you'll never... Uh, uh, huh. Pizzolatto has to be a fan of that silent Call of Cthulhu. Um, <laughs> you, know, it's, you, you go back, you watch the silent one and then go watch that scene and you'll see that, wait a minute... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's. I'm not gonna say it's identical, but it's it's Similar. definitely some type of homage. Also, also for anyone who doesn't know that that silent film, The Call of Cthulhu, was done by the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, and despite being a silent film, it was done in like 2005 or 2006 right. somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and it's really well done and true to the style of a silent film. Yes, is it available to like stream online somewhere? I don't know if it's available to <laughs> stream. It, it, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it is out there. I have my copy on DVD, but you yeah. can contact them. They're they're in, uh, I believe they're in Pasadena. Isn't that interesting? Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're in Pasadena or near there. Um, but uh, yeah, you can. They're online. Just go to their um, go okay. to um, Cth- I think it's CthulhuLives.org, or but you I, can I Google. Think so. Sure. If you HP if you LHS. if you put in the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, that's what comes up. They also did yeah, okay. a Whisper in Darkness as like a oh, 30s yeah. style movie as well. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. I hope they I hope they do another one. But, um, nice. Um, and and you see that the, like this king in yellow motif. Uh, of like the forbidden thing that will drive you insane has inspired so much stuff. Um, oh yeah, I mean, there's like the last movie podcast that the natural rate. Uh, what's was their name? Uh, I can't remember the name of the company. It does the same people who do Tannis and the Black Tapes did one oh, called the Last yeah. Movie. Whereas if you see this movie, you go insane or you die or something <laughs> like that. Um, yeah. And there's a really good series on Shutter called Dead Wax. And it's about this record collector or this person who, who record collectors hire to find really obscure records. And she's looking for these records that apparently will drive you insane if you listen to them. I love it. Oh, that's good stuff. And that one, it gets even weirder as it goes, and it's really, really well done. And they're like, sure, like it's it's weird because each episode is like one episode's ten minutes, one's forty minutes, one's five minutes, one's, and you're like, so it's it's huh. like chapters of a book. It's just as long as that chapter is. That's called dead wax. Dead wax. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I have to check that out. It's a good name for it. Um, and that's, I, I think it's only on Shutter, but I don't know, uh, like Amazon, I think sometimes works with Shutter on stuff. I don't remember. 
I'm mean, trying to think. I have it over here in my stack, and naturally, I don't know exactly where it's at. But it's a book. Maybe this is it. Um, it it's a book. Oh my gosh, I'm doing a complete brain dump on the title and everything. But it's about Blue Oyster Cult. Oh, and uh, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. What's his name? The guy uh, who wrote right the lyric. Here. Yeah, I'm completely blanking oh, on this boy. whole thing. Are, I know are, are you talking, talking about. about Martin Popoff's one? Martin Popoff. Yes, Martin yeah. Popoff's book. What the heck did I do with it? It's right here. <laughs> yeah, I, I, ha- anyway. I had him on to talk about that. Yeah, it um, basically he goes through um, this historical through line thread. I could talk about it better if I could find what I did with it. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's called it, telepathic <sighs> flaming telepaths. It's that- got the sepia cover with there's like an airship on the cover. And- yeah, I think it's called flaming telepaths. Okay. Okay. Not either. I don't know what I did with it, but um, it, it's really a fascinating concept that uh, there was some, it's it's i haven't finished reading the whole thing because what happened was i got my uh my that phase where because of the my eye situation i wasn't able to read anything you mm. know for months so i've got to got to get back to it but it's um just a fascinating concept that there's some message buried in um the the is it a particular song or is it a it's collection an album. of songs? It is an album. It's the album. It's the Imaginos yeah. album. So the title is Flaming oh, yeah. Telepaths, Imaginos Expanded and Specified. Yeah. So yeah, he okay. talks he talks about uh, how the Blue Oyster Cult wrote this album mm-hmm. entitled uh, Imaginos and how it connects in with like the esoteric history of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now he sent me a copy because at one point in the earth when he talks about a timeline, um, he sees how there is a connection with the stuff in Empire of the Wheel. What went on surrounding and connected with Empire of the Wheel is part ah. of this timeline. Fascinating. Oh, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Okay. Really cool stuff. And, and you know, I and, um, you know, Sesheri was telling me this when I was in the investigation. This and Joseph Farrell, too. They, they both independently said, you've, they said, you, you've stumbled onto something that's going to be bigger than just the events in San Bernardino Valley. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I can see that, you know, the more I, you know, that's how I ended up with the three books, you know, um, so I, that's how I describe Empire of the Wheel. It's just it's a it's a facet of a larger stone, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that makes sense. Um, and I mean, like, it's easy to see Lovecraft's influence. It's not as easy to see the Yellow King unless you know more about it. Like I said, I'm yeah, sure like- there's lots of people who wa- who listened to the last movie podcast and had no idea that mm-hmm. it was basically inspired by the Yellow King. Right. Well, there's some stuff that's like very obvious, right? Like, you know, uh, so like Chris in, in your movie corpse, there's, there's some stuff, right. That's like super overt, like the yellow clothes, right. Or mm-hmm. some of the, some of the motifs that are very visual or, or whatever, but there's so much about it. And I think the things that really hit home with people are the, are the more subtle things, you know, the, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to even put a, put a word on them. Right. Well, I think it's trying to like you know you're trying. Uh, uh, one of the things that I think is you know fantastic about cinema, and I you know teach it for a living, so uh, I um, uh, should like it to some degree, <laughs> is that I, I think that it's it has this ability, um, and you know people can go into well VR will do it better or something, but I don't know. I think there actually is something about 
this uh, window, the control and distance of the window and of the gaze of where you can uh, like make the person look like you have this control that essentially allows you to create something, you know, uh, that I, I think is, is ritualistic. Um, and I, I do think that you can get this, that, that feeling that comes out, this reaction that you're talking about, Taylor. I mean, I'm glad you had that, you know, if it, if it affected one person, then I did my job, which is what I was trying to do is you get a feeling you get a sense there's a mood or there's uh you know a a uh i'm there's a bit of knowledge that is being unlocked in you or something like that i mean however you want to talk about mm. it and the way that i, I went yes. about making yeah. the film too was very much you know i was using the scent i was using the I Ching and these sort of uh, uh um these methods of indeterminacy that came from john cage but also from chaos magic to make it uh and so i i hope that it has it's like you know for the people that it works with i think you're going to get more of this sense of what the flavor or the mouthfeel uh, uh for lack of a better term of the king in yellow but of what it represents and what you know which i don't even know what it represents that's the thing is i'm trying to articulate something that i don't quite understand you know yeah, and i, I certainly haven't unlocked yes exactly you, there you go you know, i would say you can feel it as much as you can feel what's filtered down through you as much as it was filtered down through the people who wrote those things uh, yeah. and, and that's yep. all art you know the biggest yep. thing that i think of when i think of something like that with corpse is there's there's a character essentially the repairer of reputations who talks with like his you know he's there's there's close-ups and correct me if i'm wrong i've seen this i haven't seen this in a while but there's like close-ups of his face but you almost can't see his eyes right and then his voice right. is replaced with right. like the the buzzing of flies yes and yeah. but like the way it's not even it's not even about those things as much as it's about the way that he's talking like you can you can see his mouth moving and that something about that portrays that feeling that you're trying to get across yeah. in in this way that's yeah. really just speaks of the the king in yellow to me i guess yeah yeah and i think there's something mm -hmm. about like that idea of the information being conveyed but it being you know garbled or or filtered or you know um uh this, that that other sound the the sound of the flies that was in there mm -hmm. um you know that's very much what we were thinking about uh when we did the sound design so yeah, yeah. So, um, Lovecraft, uh, I remember having John Ward on early on the show and he was saying that Lovecraft in, uh, Crowley spoke, a you know, uh, spoke and, uh, I wasn't able to find any evidence of it and he couldn't find where he heard that. Um, um I've never seen any evidence of it personally. Yeah. yeah in fact, that's, that's a point of discussion when you talk about did Lovecraft and Crowley ever meet? I mean, yeah. I seem to recall that. There is no evidence that they ever did that it's, it's, I have no problem with Lovecraft, of course, having been aware of Crowley because sure. it's not like Crowley, Crowley was obscure and unknown back then. Um, and Lovecraft could certainly, I think it's obvious, call it Cthulhu, he was certainly familiar with Crowley's writings, but as far as them meeting, um, that's, that's never been proven and it's a, it's a point of discussion yeah, in yeah, the scholarship. Yep. So, um, but yeah, there, there does seem to be some similarity between the stuff Lovecraft wrote and some of the stuff that, that Crowley wrote. 
Um, and what is it about the Call of Cthulhu? There's a specific name. Well, it's more. It's more than just a similarity. It's, for instance, um, Crowley called the 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 the, the entity that the the, the it, He said it was named Tutulu. That's it. <laughs> Just with a T instead of a uh, yeah, sound. Yeah. You know, and the description and the tentacle. That, I mean, yeah, it's it's a, a, a striking similarity. Am I incorrect? I feel like it, maybe it's Lavenda um, that talks about uh, there being some sort of correspondence between like when uh, Lovecraft was having the dream that Cthulhu came, uh, that, 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 that came from, or when he was getting that, like around the time that he was writing it essentially. And then yeah. Crowley, was it the Alamantra working or uh, one of well, them? I feel like there was some lineup there where they're happening essentially the, at the same time. Well, the, the, the theme of the idea of learning about Cthulhu through the dreams and stuff, Crowley in his book, which is supposed to be nonfiction, which he's saying this is true, this really happened. He's yeah. saying that that's how Cthulhu, um, you know, the priest of Cthulhu, whatever, that's how the, the, the being was communicating, was in the way that Lovecraft dramatized. Right, right, okay, and, yes. Uh, and the Amalantra, Am- Am- Alamantra, however it's, it's pronounced, um, was that, was that, 1911 or was it later that i don't remember i i'm for some reason i'm thinking it was years before because cthulhu he wrote it and published it in 1926 or 1927 yeah Um, okay yeah maybe that wasn't it maybe maybe it was in egypt when i he had his uh uh or maybe I'm I'm mixing oh, I, up my was much earlier. I was as much earlier. Okay, I was as much earlier. Yeah, I well, thought it yeah, was around. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was 1917. I think. Well, yeah, book, personally, book. I I I think I think Lovecraft read Crowley's book. I think Lovecraft yeah. was inspired by that very thing. Now it's which, interesting. Which oh, it's one of the Liebers. Um. It, oh wait, let me see. I could probably tell you. Right here. Uh, hold on. Let me see. Da, 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 da. I've got it. I've got a page marked. Um, and of course, it's not going to make it. Here we go. Here we go. Um, and and that's that's totally plausible too, because even if Lovecraft wasn't actually interested in magic and stuff, I mean, there are so many writers of paranormal fiction nowadays who don't believe in any of it. Yeah. And, I, and I'm always amazed by that, that these people are so dismissive of the very thing they're writing about. Here we go. Um, it is... Yikes. I'm in the section of my book that, it's, that it talks about it. I'm just trying to find the darn page here. It's... Uh, okay. Um, Lovecraft wrote Call of Cthulhu in 1926. Yeah. Um, Crowley did his book... In the year that Lovecraft says um, that element of the story takes That's place. That's what it was. That's what 1907. it was. 1907. Yeah. That's what it uh, was. Oh, here it is. Here it is. It, um, he, Crowley first used the word Tutulu in the book he was then writing, the Liber, Liberi Vel Lapidus Lazuli. 
Mm. Oh, okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. Never heard of that. And uh, oh, wait, wait. But here we go. Here we go. In Liber Cortis Sancti Serpente, the book of the heart girt with a serpent, yep. Crowley refers numerous times to an abyss of the great deep. But in in Lazuli, okay. he describes the mysterious god of the deep abyss being buried in a coffin in a sepulcher. In Call of Cthulhu, Lovecraft describes the abode of the elder gods. Thus, the great stone city are like blah blah blah. I can never pronounce the R word with its monolith and oh, sepulchers. Relay. relay. Yeah, thank you, Tatulu and stuff. And 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 here's the thing. And, and I drew this. My source was uh, Lavenda's Typhon book, um, The Dark Lord. And um, Crowley was writing this stuff like on November first, nineteen oh seven. Okay, nineteen or twenty years before Call of Cthulhu. Crowley okay. writes of a tentacled and gnarled fish entity who is a messenger of old gods entombed in a sepulcher in a great and deep abyss. In 1926. Lovecraft writes to Call of Cthulhu about a tentacled fish-like god-priest who heralds the coming of the Elder Gods and who is entombed in a sepulcher in the abyss. So you see totally yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so Crowley's writing this before 1910. And, I, you know, I, and, and I, I'm not saying this as a uh, criticism of Lovecraft. I'm saying the evidence shows that Lovecraft clearly read Crowley's book. Yeah. Um, right. Greater discussion there is, um, you know, it wasn't just a reading of a couple of books of Crowley's that, you know, born all this Lovecraft mythos and the intensity and the depth of it. I, I, I mean, what I'm saying is, is I think the reason this book clearly had an inspirational impact on the particular thing that Lovecraft wrote was because I think Lovecraft independently was was in his personal research and investigation and scholarship was finding the same secrets and things that Crowley was learning and dealing with too, is right, what I think. Right. And, and, and it would be an even weirder coincidence if Lovecraft was not aware of Crowley and came up with something so similar. Yeah, that, well, that would be completely wild right there. You know, yeah, it'd be cool if that had happened that way, but we have to, we have to be, you know, rational in this. And it's like, okay, yeah, he, he uh, of course he was influenced by Crowley's writing, but yeah. the important thing is Crowley was saying it was real. Yes. See, it didn't yeah. it didn't start out that the first telling of this was the fictional one and then a later it, it wasn't that Crowley wrote Call of Cthulhu and then Lovecraft comes out and says, No, 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 it was real. No, no, no. Crowley was saying <laughs> first, Oh, this is real, and then Lovecraft uses it for fiction. And of course, real too, when you're dealing with you know, topics like this. It, I can have a weird connotation as well. Party pooper. <laughs> <laughs> it may not. What I mean is, it may not be real in a physical sense. Uh, I know. <laughs> yeah, we have to yeah, admit that. What <laughs> even is real? Well, that's but, it. That's it right. I will. Add, I will add that Lovecraft did say that the the seeds, and this is, uh, I guess, uh, looking at the sort of uh, Joshi's. Um, uh, voluminous uh, notes here that there were two letters in in Lovecraft's correspondence in from 1920 where he mentions the dream that he had in 1919 that uh, the seed of Call of Cthulhu uh, came from. Mm, okay. Huh. Yeah. And so that's that's interesting. You know yeah. that that and, and here's the thing. In all honesty. I don't. I, I mean, we're left to guess if he read Crowley's book, to, or to presume that he did, because he doesn't say. I don't think ever that he read the works of Crowley, but yet he says what you just said—that yes, he had this right, dream. Right, and Crowley, right. twenty years earlier, says that artists and writers and poets 
are having these dreams. So it comes back to, again, oh my God, was Lovecraft having the same real experience that Crowley claimed others were having? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is fascinating. And are we left to assume from that that the so-called Cthulhu, this priest of Cthulhu in the sepulcher in the bottom of the sea, then therefore is there something real, you know, about this entity if this happened independently? Right. Right. And then you had Grant who started, you know, literally bringing this into Crowley's work, like like all the Lovecraft imagery and combining it in with Crowley's stuff mm-hmm. to create his Typhonian current. Yeah. Is there anything out there, this is interesting, is there anything out there that gives us an idea of what Crowley thought of Lovecraft's work? Ooh, I don't know. I haven't Just heard think anything. About it. Clearly, if question. Crowley was, if Crowley ever read The Call of Cthulhu, come on, <laughs> you know, huh. I, I wonder what he thought of that. Of course, the difference is Crowley was infamous. Lovecraft really didn't make that much of an impression. Well, but, 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 yeah, definitely. But he was prominently being prominently published, at least in the pulp publications of the day. So he wasn't unknown. Right, right. Well, he he was mostly being published by uh, who is that? It's um, Weird Tales. Is that that August? Uh, why am I blanking? Well, I'm trying time? to remember if Derleth. August Derleth. Derleth. Yeah. yeah. Was he, he wasn't contemporary a contemporary. With? I mean, he he, he was, was later in life. I think they yeah. were, but it wasn't. It was mainly Weird Tales that Lovecraft was, yeah, was weird in. Okay, which was an existing publication. Yeah, Derleth uh, was the one that really began the the uh, resurgence of interest in Lovecraft. The, yeah. the popular, yeah. okay. uh, he, he's the one that started why we yeah. talk about Lovecraft to this day. And he also sure. is the one that sort of, he, he, you know, for better or worse, that's, you know, debatable, formalized this kind of elemental... Uh, a pantheon of gods for the mythos. So you hear people uh-huh. a lot of times will talk about, okay, well, Ithaqua is the, you know, the ice uh, um, god and uh, Cthulhu's mm-hmm. the sea god. And, um, yeah. uh, you know, and that was all August Derleth. Uh, I, okay. yeah, you know, uh, as far as I know, Lovecraft was very like, there wasn't, this was just mad, mad, insane chaos. You know, there was mm. no formality to it as well it should be right you know well i think that's i mean there's an argument to be made that that is indeed the sort of true form of it you know so So, uh, oh yeah go ahead so uh my i'm trying to get his i can't remember his damn name uh he's been on the show talking about lovecraft before he has a blog called oh uh, daniel harms he's been on the show a few times uh has a blog called papers falling from an attic window and one of the articles is lovecraft and crowley and it says, time and time again, people have asked whether science fiction author H.P. Lovecraft and notorious occultist Alistair Crowley had heard of each other or were in any way connected. I covered H.P. Lovecraft's knowledge of Crowley in my 40 and Times article, and the short version of that is H.P.L. had heard of him and seen a book in the store but didn't know much more than was in the popular press. But did Crowley hear of Lovecraft? When I first got on the internet years ago, I read the following story. I can't find a printout of the email. I know it's around here somewhere. But even if it, even then, it was presented as apocryphal. As Crowley aficionados know, one of Crowley's disciples in his later years was Grady McMurdy. McMurdy later came to the head of an organization considered by many, but not to all, to be the heir of Crowley's OTO. In the waning years of Crowley's life, McMurdy was fighting in World War II and visited Crowley when on leave. As the story goes, McMurdy was of high enough rank to name four of the Jeeps under his command. The first three he selected mythos names. I recall Haster... 
Nyar Nyar I can never say that one. Nyarlathotep. Yes, and Cthulhu. All of these, of course, are God's aliens, titans from the Cthulhu mythos. His men begged him to let them pick the fourth name. He relented and ended up with the fourth uh, Jeep name being named Snowdrop. Oh, no. <laughs> That's amazing. If this that's like that's like when you let people like didn't they recently let kids uh, uh, these kids like rename their school because used to be uh, I don't know like Robert E Lee you yeah, know high yeah. and they yeah. they renamed it like Schoolie McSchool face yes yeah. <laughs> uh, if the story is true it's likely that McMurdy was a large Lovecraft fan if that's true then there's a good chance he mentioned it to Crowley. From what little I know about Crowley, that makes it likely that Crowley rolled his eyes, asked him why he couldn't read some Swinburne <laughs> or Baudelaire instead, and promptly forgot all about it. Still, I've often wondered if it was true. I could just hear this. Oh, the Baudelaire part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Crowley probably would. That's, that yeah. sounds. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. I want to take a moment here and thank all of my Patreons for making Where Did the Road Go what it is. I want to give a special shout out to those of you pledging $10 or more. Chuck Shutters, Leanne Cherry, Allison Cook, Super Inframan, 36 Dingo, CJ, Tim, Andrew Nichols, Christine, a blue second gen MR2 drifting around a Japanese mountain, Patricia Gaiaquinta, Alex Whitcomb, American Rambler, Andrew Maines, Barbara Fisher, Beverly Williamson, Big Boy Limina, Charles Davis, Charles in Florida, Land of the Crazy Incommunicable, Lauren McLean, Chris Ernst, Greg Parmenter, Crystal Ann Compton, Diane B., Edu Camahort, MTK, Eric Citron, Varosh K., Eric Todd, Jim Pyre, Joanna Rojas, John Bracken, Carla Mahoney, Ann Witowski, Kevin, Kevin Shrek, Cool Kitty, Kristen L., Laser Printer Jam, Linz Jackson K., Luke Osborne, MJ Armstrong, Jim and Sophie, Mark Brady, Matt in Delaware, Patricia W., Paul Jeffries, Ray Benedetto, Riker and Stark, Roger Gonzalez, Ron Dupre, Sam Sheron, Tactical Therapist, Taylor Bell, Thunderboy, Tyler Glimstead, Vincent Trewell, Walker, Will Gebhard, Will Powell, Ren Collier, Stephen D., and Amber Hall. Thank you all so very, very much. Are you fascinated by UFOs, the occult, strange history, and more? On October 14th through the 16th at SIR Nashville, the Strange Realities Conference 2022 will take place. Three days of exploring the mysteries of the supernatural, history, UFOs, the occult, and much, much more. Featuring presentations by Steve Berg, Micah Hanks, John Tinney, Adam Gorightly, Tim Banal, Christopher Ernst, Samantha Engel, Recluse, Nathan Isaac, Melody Blackthorne, Dr. Future, Soraya Askath, Timothy Ritter, Aaron Gullius, Delaney Bowers, Olaf Phillips, and David Metcalf. With workshops by Kiki Dombrowski, Ren Collier, and Michael Hughes. Come join us in Nashville or online. Tickets are available at strangerealitiesconference.com. Find out what everyone is talking about. Thank you. 
We live our entire lives knowing that death awaits us. Many believe that some part of us endures. Eyewitnesses swear to have seen spirits of the dead haunting the living, and even appearing during alien abductions. Is the UFO mystery reaching out to us from beyond the stars, or from beyond the grave? This staggering implication demands not only scrutiny of the UFO phenomenon, but near-death experiences, ancient monuments, ley lines, the fey folk, cryptids, and more. I'm Joshua Cutchin. I'd like to invite you into the Ecology of Souls, a new mythology of death and the paranormal, a comprehensive theory of all things supernatural framed through the lens of our final transition. Join me as we journey from the depths of prehistory to the present, from the outer space of the cosmos to the inner space of the self. Ecology of Souls, Volumes 1 and 2, now available from Amazon in print and as a combined ebook. Welcome to the Ecology of Souls. So we are here on Where Did the Road Go talking about Lovecraft, the yellow sign stuff, and I have uh, Super Inframan, Christopher Ernst, Taylor, and uh, Taylor Bell. I always leave out Taylor's last name because Taylor is just kind of his name, and uh, and, uh, oh my God, Walter Bosley. Yeah, yeah, that guy. (laughs) For a second, my brain just went nowhere. And uh, we have a little bit of time left here, and we were just talking about the collection connections between Lovecraft and Crowley. Um, obviously, uh, some some people insist on them. Uh, I just found a, a Reddit article under Thalema that talks about the Dark Lord by Peter Lavenda, which is the obvious. That's that's what you were talking about, uh, Walter. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, I've got something. Huh? Uh, sorry, I don't want to change the subject if if you're going into something. But I've got something that I was uh, hoping to bring up yeah. during the show. Go but- ahead. Uh, so earlier, uh, we were talking about the way that King and Yellow has influenced, um, you know, culture and other forms of art, like, you know, um, books and film and stuff like that. Now, music and everything. And I, I mentioned, you know, sort of offhandedly, also board games. And I wanted to kind of bring that up because um, the most interesting King and Yellow based uh, thing that I've seen so far has been uh, an RPG source book called uh, Impossible Landscapes. Uh, so I don't know if, if y'all are familiar. There's there's an RPG out there called Call of Cthulhu. It, mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 loosely based on the idea that your players play investigators in a sort of Lovecraftian type world yeah. uh, in the 1920s, usually uh, investigating some kind of you know uh, Cthulhu esque. Uh, problem, you know, might be cultists or it might be some kind of monsters or, or whatever. Right. Um, in the nineties, uh, there was an expansion to that game called uh, Delta Green, and I've mentioned it a couple times before. But it so it, it's it's rooted in in Lovecraft largely, and so a lot of the stuff that's in these games, Call of Cthulhu and Delta Green, stem from those kind of, um, those sort of like cycles of fiction. Uh, in Delta Green specifically, you also get a lot more of the Fortean stuff. You, you get, get more like modern paranormal kind of stuff. Um, but in uh, 2020, I think it was, maybe 2021, uh, Arc Dreams published a, a book called impossible landscapes which is a king and yellow campaign for delta green uh it's it's sort of a four act play uh you know if you will where you take your your players through um a series of 
kind of twisted happenings that are that are very directly inspired by the the Chambers book, um, but also sort of get at this this feeling that we're talking about with with gnosis and with trying to understand the ineffable and ending up you know um, in a position where maybe it's safer not to know. Um, but it's it's a really great game, and uh, I just wanted to. Uh, talk about it and pitch it a little bit for anybody who's who's out there um, who's into rpgs definitely check it out if you're into uh, king yellow or lovecraft yeah so i found this little tidbit on uh one of the reddit conversations and i don't know if it's true or not because it doesn't actually even have the username but it says lovecraft actually hated people like crowley he thought they were charlatans that needed to be exposed the only connection is through Lovecraft's wife, Sonia Green, who met Crowley while mm-hmm. she was staying in the United States. She that's seemed true. To, she seemed to dabble in the occult, whereas Lovecraft did not. Yeah, that's that's part of when I said before that you know it's a dis, it's an ongoing discussion in circles. Did they meet or did they not? That that is what's brought up. That if they did ever meet, um, the best chance that they could have would have been when he was married and living in New York. You know, for that very reason. Um, but again, uh, it's never mentioned if he did. It's not. You know, there's no nothing to back it up other right. than the uh, right speculation. So, so back to what I was saying before the break, briefly. Why is it that so many writers of paranormal fiction and stuff, or people like Lovecraft, who are writing stuff that is right in line with the stuff Crowley's talking about, don't actually like that stuff? You know, it always it always feels weird to me. Like, uh, like you know, I had Joseph Fink on from Welcome to Night Vale, who's that's a very Lovecraftian type of show, and I asked him something about you know, are you into the paranormal or stuff? And he kind of ducked the question a little, and said, "Well, mm-hmm. when I go to bookstores, I always go looking for interesting paranormal books." You know, he's like because those get to, you know those are influences on what we write, but he never said whether or not he was actually into it because because it goes back to. Uh you know, that famous line, me thinks he doth protest too much. Um, what goes on, there's a lot of, you know, uh, uh, externally denying, uh, you know, what is actually the opposite. You could be deeply into that stuff, but um, it's like the casting the pearls, you know, casting your pearls before swine. It's you don't want the profane to know. Mm. So I, I, I think I think Lovecraft. Um, took that stuff more seriously than he let on. I think that was just um, to deflect. I, I I don't believe that he. When you look at all his writings and and stuff, I I don't buy the uh, the, the assumption that he was not into that stuff. Because look at what he said. He said, "Oh, this is all." You know, I mean, we here have talked about. I mean, I think ETs exist, but look how critical I am of most of the ET hypothesis claims in ufology. I think right, you right. know, ninety percent of it's BS. You know, but I certainly believe in ETs and, and think they exist. So I, I think, um, I actually think Crowley was more seriously interested in that stuff than than he just chose to you, admit. You mean Lovecraft. You're Lovecraft, right? Yeah, Lovecraft. Yeah. What did I say? <laughs> Crowley, Crowley. Crowley. Oh yeah, Crowley for sure. Yeah, no, Lovecraft <laughs> definitely was was uh I I I suspect he was he was just saying that to deflect people from, you know, um how deep the involvement is is what I was getting at. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know- 
Oh, go ahead, Walter. Oh no, I'm no, I, I was I was going to say one of the things that that bugged the crap out of me. Uh, the guy who wrote John dies at the end. Mm-hmm. If you read those books, the high strangeness, the weirdness. I mean, they're like so on target. And like you get done, I think it's at the end of the third book. I don't know if it's in the first two, but at the end of the third book, he has this disclaimer saying that if you've had a paranormal experience or et cetera, et cetera, don't send it to me. You're mentally ill and you should seek therapy. Huh. And I was just David Wong, by the way. Yes. Yeah. His real, he just exposed his real name recently. I think he's now writing under his real name. Okay, good. (laughs) But it it was like, it was just really like rude and and just, and I'm like, these books are so good and he is such like unlikable, you know, (laughs) like it's it's one thing to say, well, I don't believe in this stuff. Don't send me your stories. But to say that anyone who thinks they've had a paranormal experience is mentally ill is like, what the hell, dude? Uh, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm suspicious of a comment like that, you know, at the, as you say, in juxtaposition with what he was writing, look at the, um, the star Wars movie that so many original fans hate episode eight. Right. And one of their complaints was why is Luke such an asshole? Right. And remember when he first meets her and she dramatically hands him his lightsaber and he just throws it away. And, you know, eh, get out of here. You, this isn't, you know, just go away. And, and of course, what they were trying to do is he's just really trying to see how dedicated she is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and yeah, so yeah. I, that that's the spirit of what I'm talking about with the protesting too much. Ah, it's all BS. You not when actually <laughs> beneath that veneer, they take it very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it, it could be argued that what that was is, um, you know, just trying to put off people that aren't really that serious about going farther in their interests in that stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I could be wrong. Maybe he really does think it's nonsense. I, I it's think just he, I really think, think he does. And I, I think that some people, this stuff terrifies and that's mm-hmm. where they get that attitude from. Like they think it's fine as fiction and maybe even they write it as fiction because exactly. it scares them. Exactly. I would agree with you there. The biggest critics are the people that are scared the most of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and you know what? They're not entirely unjustified because you're playing with dangerous stuff when oh, yeah. you start playing on those planes and levels. I, I mean, there's people, uh, uh, you know, I'm not going to name them, but, you know, they, they uh, and there's several people who kind of, they don't brag, but they're out there very openly about, hey, I'm doing this ritual and I'm trying this and I'm doing that. And, you know, you say, um, okay, um, do you have children at home or do you, you know, because mm-hmm. you might be exposing yourself, you might bring a hitchhiker home with you. And yeah, um, yeah. if, and, and here's the yeah. thing, here's the thing. If you believe in it enough and you're taking it seriously enough to be out there doing the rituals, then therefore you, th- th- that implies that you've got to be taking it seriously enough to know that there's things out there that don't that, that could mean you harm and sure. that are looking for every chance to attach themselves to a living material being. And so it's you got to be responsible with it. And, and I think that's why people sometimes will use that um uh, surface denial, you know, mm-hmm. or that's why it's scare. That's what we were on was that's why it scares people is because they, maybe they know all too well the, how real it is. Mm. Um, I don't know. And I, I, and I think too, that there's a, I think you're right. And I think that, uh, uh, Greg Bishop has talked about this a little bit, I think in terms of UFO research 
and sort of other people too. Uh, um, uh, Susan um, Demeter has talked about this, you know, doing doing work or doing, uh, and when I say work, I say that sort of with the big W uh, and not in the Gurdjieff way, but in the, well, kind of in the Gurdjieff way, but magic, you know, is that mm. anything like that, um, you... <laughs> Not to say that it's it can't be something that is observed and out there for the people involved, um, but having a it be public oftentimes or a formalization of it, let's say the f- yeah. formalizing oftentimes will negate something. And this is not you know this is just many people have observed this and many people work in this way not to keep it clandestine because there's something that needs to be necessarily hidden from the plebeians but could be too but uh mm-hmm. also that it is more effective if it is kept almost in the realm ah, of imagination. Of mm. course, yeah. Yeah, I can yeah, I could see that. I could see that 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 makes perfect sense to me. And and of course connected to all this stuff we also have all the different uh essentially quote fake editions of the Necronomicon because there was never a real Necronomicon. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, yeah. Don't you I've, love the people? Don't you love the people who insist? No, 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 no. It really was. <laughs> yep. I, no, I think real. it really it does exist, but it's called the Picatrix. <laughs> now, <laughs> I, what's the Picatrix? Uh, if you don't know, it's a, it's it's uh, essentially a book of uh, m- a magic from um, Arabic, uh, from an Arabic um, mage scholar. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. it's astrological magic. Okay, yeah. okay. It's main. There's a lot of astrological magic, but there's you know, it's there's it's you know, it's very much like a old tome uh, written by Abdul El Hazred, um, but it's oh, not. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, yeah. I, to me, that's completely reasonable that he was inspired by things that were very real. Yeah, I'll, yeah, I, I would agree yeah. with that. Well, I think it's also it's called called Gayat uh, Gayat Hakim. I'm mispronouncing that terribly. My Arabic, um, uh, the aim of the sage or the goal of the wise, and it's a lot of uh, yeah, it's astral astrological uh, talismanic magic, but it's you know essentially wait until the stars are aligned draw a circle mm-hmm. do something and mm-hmm. you know uh something's gonna you know, something's gonna happen so very much yeah. like this idea of what the necronomicon is and and around the time uh lovecraft was writing too is when we were discovering sumer so that's he took a lot of inspiration from that too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um the uh but the necronomicon the interesting thing about it is i've known people who have tried to use the necronomicon and got results and i think well yes because it's kind of like chaos magic you know yeah. the the intent, yeah. the belief. If if it's there, it's going. It's potentially going to work. Um, when I was reading it, you know, I picked it up out of curiosity, and I sat there reading it, going, "So this is basically just Sumerian stuff mixed with Lovecraft." You know, pretty straightforward when you read through it. It's like, "Oh, that's Sumerian. That's Lovecraft. That's Sumerian. That's Lovecraft." <laughs> Um, but I had a whole bunch of some of my highest strangeness stuff, the weird, some of the weirdest stuff happened when I was reading that damn book. Sure. Uh, Interesting. So I That's don't know no, if it, no, huh? which book cases. was that again specifically? Uh, the Simon was Necronomicon. The Simon. Yeah. Oh, the, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That one. Which yeah. was probably mm-hmm. written by, did it was Lavender the one that people have decided probably wrote that one? Yeah. That's, That's, people say. That's who they, yeah. So. Um, so as far as like Lovecraft and this type of stuff in films, uh, obviously there's tons of Lovecraft inspired ones. I think the new Colorado space was great with Nicholas Cage. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. 
the two, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society did were great. But uh, some mm-hmm. of the ones like like in the Mouth of Madness, which is inspired by Lovecraft stuff, but isn't. Mm-hmm. I love right. uh, From Beyond, uh, The Thing. Even though it was inspired by a '60s or '50s or '60s sci-fi movie, uh, John, uh, yeah, that that interesting. That was uh, John Campbell, right? John, John Carpenter. Carpenter. Is that his name? Carpenter. Carpenter. Yeah, yeah. Carpenter. Yeah. yeah. No, no, that was the direct. He directed the remake of it, but the original oh, story. Oh, original. Oh, in the mouth yeah. of madness. No, no, no. The no, story the, is. Oh, the thing. I'm sorry, we've moved on from that. Yeah, the yes, thing. thing. You're right. Yes, the thing the was thing is a remake. Who absolutely. Goes there? Yep. But yep. it's the short story's titled "Who Goes There," and oh. um, I'm trying to remember the author. Well, the mo- the original movie was the thing from <sighs> another world, based okay. on yes. the story. Who goes based there. on the story? Yeah. Okay. Which and was, was written, uh, if I'm not mistaken, not too distant from uh, "At the Mountains of Madness," right? Weren't they like pretty like within ten years? Uh, I totally I don't off recall. Base. I remember I, looking I, this up at one point because I I thought the thing. It was so there were so many similarities to at the mountains of madness. Oh yeah. Oh, um, oh sure, I, sure. Yeah. I, I was trying to figure because, out is, you know it's one of the based uh, on the other, but Lovecraft was probably one of the inspirations, you know, for for the author and definitely you know, for the remake. Yeah. You know, uh, talking about things being influenced, Stranger Things seem to have a, a Lovecraft influence oh, yeah. on top yeah. of just taking mm-hmm. the the Montauk mythos and you know serializing it. I feel like they went from Montauk very to they like you know diverted to this love. It's much more Lovecraftian now. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there's also uh, Dagon, which is mm-hmm. the shadow over in's mouth. That's really yes. good. Yeah. Uh, and there's also there's one that's just called Cthulhu, which is the shadow over in's mouth. <laughs> But it's that's uh, the one with Tory Spelling. That's right? the one with Tory Spelling and an all gay cast. Yeah, oh, interesting. what? Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Yep, yeah. and it's really good. Oh, no, it's good. It's very oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, and it, real there's, quick, I just looked it up. Um, the thing, the the who goes there was 1938, and Mountains of Madness was 36. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so there was some influence going on there. And there, there's also an independent one called the Banshee Chapter that's really good. Yeah, yeah, I've, good. Seen, I've seen that. Yep. Um, what's there's a couple other bigger ones that I'm forgetting right now. Uh, From Beyond, which really is just the very beginning of the story Lovecraft wrote, and then the rest of it yeah. is new. Uh, Reanimator. Oh, yeah, yeah, Reanimator. Reanimator. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. That yeah. that original film is amazing. Jeff Coombs. The the other two are fun as well. They're not on the level of the first one, but Bride of Reanimator uh-huh. and uh, I don't remember what the other one's called. I enjoyed both of those. Oh, uh, in the sixties, there was the one with um, oh my gosh, the guy that was in Quantum Leap. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dean Stockwell. Yep. Dean Stockwell. Yeah, uh, that was uh, that was the uh, the one about the the you know cosmic mutant god yeah. baby uh what's it called um oh my brain is not dun, working dun, dun with horror. Yeah. Dun yes horror, yeah. and actually there's a remake of the Dunwich horror that came out in the 2000s maybe it's not very good uh it ran as like a sci-fi channel exclusive type of thing when they used to have those mm-hmm. every like saturday uh, but mm-hmm. Dean Stockwell makes a, a guest appearance in it. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, cool. One of the best. Dean Stockwell, yeah. rest in peace. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I had no idea he was in Blue Velvet. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's like in some of the best movies. He's he's he's, he's the greatest. Fascinating. It, just as an aside, talking about uh, Crowley, 
I thought Lovecraft Country was really a story about people being influenced by Crowley than anything to do with Lovecraft. <laughs> True. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely Lovecraft, you know, vibes going through it, too. Uh, yeah. Here's what it had to do with Lovecraft was geographically where it took place is uh, known as Lovecraft Country uh-huh. among literary scholars. So oh. they they borrowed it from that. Very That's directly. The okay. See, the term Lovecraft Country has been around for decades um and that's where they borrowed it for the title because if you recall does it the series took place mostly um in massachusetts and around there right yeah yeah yeah. Well, yeah. they're going to artem which uh Ar- yeah was, arkham. Uh, arkham arkham yeah. yeah yeah exactly and in western massachusetts um, which is, is i think is yeah known as lovecraft country to yeah. literary scholars. which is where i went did my undergraduate there and i lived there for a oh. while yeah, well, yeah you know yeah. lovecraft country popped up in the empire of the wheel stuff because i found a constellation of streets next to the old weird quarry that i write about this constellation of streets right there on a little community on the the hill that the quarries dug out of um, the streets are named after um, an area in an areas in and around um, Mount Greylock, which is in yeah, Western Massachusetts. Right, right. And there's a Greylock Avenue. There's so there, there's some type of Lovecraft Country connection to what I stumbled onto out here with the Empire of the Wheel. And um, oh, what's his? He had a guy that he worked with that was a friend of his, a writer. I'm doing a brain dump on the name, but that guy's wife, when she was a young teen, lived here in the city of Redlands, um, which is no, not Clark Ashton Smith. See, he went by a a, oh gosh, Walter, you've got your books right here. Um, The the brain only accesses the information you need when you don't need it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I'll I'll think of it later. But um, uh, uh, he um, he co-wrote some things with uh, Lovecraft. Oh, I know who you're talking and, about. Crap. Yeah. And <laughs> um, exactly. It. Crap. It's driving me nuts. But anyway, um, I think that's possibly where Lovecraft might have learned some information directly about this area here. And maybe some insider information on what happened in the Empire of the Wheel mystery. Because I go into this whole thing in one of the books, um, I think the third one, um, one of the people, a young a young 24-year-old guy who's arrested on a train 11 days after the mystery woman that I write about is found dead. Um, I propose the speculation that the classic Lovecraft protagonist that started showing up in his fiction, you know, the, the brilliant minded guy who sees, you know, beyond the veil and it drives him mad. Like we were talking about Yeah, that, that really happened in 1915 to this young guy named Frank Rosasco. And I even, I was able to interview family members of his, um, uh, basically his great nephew. And he, asked his mom who knew frank because frank didn't die till 1973 and um she said uh she said oh yeah that must be about um when you're when uncle frank went down to southern california to san Bernardino, where he lost his mind wow when here's the thing here's the thing talk about lovecraftian influences okay or excuse me influences on lovecraft because this is 1915 people okay 1915 
Okay, Frank Rosasco, he's a he's considered a very bright and brilliant engineering student at I think Berkeley, okay? And he had a bright future ahead of him. He's arrested on a train having a nervous breakdown, seeing visions of a woman's face and and saying I didn't hurt her, I didn't hurt her or and and he spends he's taken to um, the local county hospital here um, and and put on the psych ward and he's diagnosed as dangerously paranoid yet oh and there's a murder mystery going on in town okay and there's every reason to think he's a suspect but the newspapers reports say this he was released from the hospital and from custody he was released into the custody of unidentified, and this is how they put it, friends from Sonora, meaning Sonora, California. Mm-hmm. He, was, uh, he was a member of the big, wealthy, very successful um, Rosasco ranching family up there that's still up there to this day. And he spent the last 50 some odd years of his life, get this, on the family property. And here's what he did every day for 56 years. He obsessively would work out mathematical equations. He would do astronomical observations every night, and he was doing some type of geophysical survey on the uh, on the property around there. He spent every day, 56 years of his remaining life doing that. He wow. never became an engineer. Uh, math- mathematics, astronomical observations, and something to do with the terrain. What the hell happened to this man yeah, in San Bernardino in 1915? See? And what did he see? And what was he looking for after that? And so was he doing this in the property in Sonora? Yes. Oh, wow. wow. I talk about this in, I go into this in my yeah. Empire of the Wheel books. Yeah, right. I forgot. Yeah. Two, about but that. especially number three and it, it, it you know he died in 1973 i personally suspect that lovecraft could have heard about the frank rosasco case because clark ashton smith lived uh, not far from sonora and um tuolumne county okay and everybody up there at the time had heard what was going on down here and they knew what had happened to Frank Rosasco. So it's possible. So Lovecraft had two sources to have learned about what this Frank Rosasco character, this guy, okay? Um, Clark Ashton Smith was one of them. And the other guy, gosh darn it, the author's wife, um, it's it's escaping me again. Um, So Lovecraft could very well have heard about Frank Rosasco and then looked into it more deeply because Frank Rosasco is the spitting image of what Lovecraft would go on to write as his usual protagonist. Interesting. Because none of his none of his stories had that kind of protagonist until obviously after 1915. Huh. Well, anyway, for what that's worth. Wow. So we I are we are out of crazy time. Bit. Unfortunately. So, it's uh, a hell of a note to end on. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um let's start with uh Taylor, where can people find you? Um that's a great question. Uh, right now, right here. All right. What about like your tarot deck? Do you have a website for that? Uh, not at the moment. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm kind of I'm I'm in uh, the middle of uh, many shuffles. Okay. But, uh, Green yeah. Lion Podcast still available? Uh, yes, it is. Green Lion Podcast is on podcast players and such. Uh, although okay. it's it's uh, sort of on hiatus. Right. The last one was the one you did uh, that I was on. Right. Yep. They yep. had like in a June, compilation of people. My intention was to put one out in September, um, but I have had no time to work on it because I've been moving. Gotcha. Uh, Super Inframan is uh, available on social media. 
You can track me down. Yeah, I'm on Instagram and a couple other places out there. Discord. Discord. I, I, I try to be active in the Discord when people ask questions and things like that, for sure. Uh, Chris? Uh, you can go to brightrectangle.com, which is where all my uh, film stuff is. And if you want to watch the aforementioned uh, strange interpretation of King Yellow Corpse, it's on Amazon Prime. You can rent it there for like three bucks. Is it also on Troma? It's not, I don't think it's on trauma and I think just the hill in the hole, which you can oh, also watch okay. is on trauma and that's, you know, slightly Lovecraftian, but in a lot more silly discordian way, it's, you know, stars got to go rightly. So what are you going to get? <laughs> and Walter, it's a lot of fun. Oh, uh, by the way, I remembered the name of that author Clifford Eddie. Oh, that isn't that's, what I was thinking of. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Clifford Eddie is the guy I couldn't think of his name. That was his wife lived here and blah, blah, blah. Um, I, uh, the first place to go for, for me right now for my latest, you know, things, um, is the Walter Bosley channel at YouTube. Um, you can also go to empire of the wheel dot Um, sometimes I go for a long time without posting there, but there's always good stuff there. And my books are available print on demand only at lulu.com only, um, never Amazon lulu.com. And what, what next book is, do you have a time frame on that? Um, I am hoping to, for my next book to be the follow-up to the esoteric Napoleon, meaning esoteric Napoleon volume two. Cool. So, and then we're looking at some time, hopefully sometime next year, about like mid year, you know, late. All right. Well, thank you all. This has been awesome. Fantastic. Thank Thank you. you. Yeah. Yeah, had a lot of fun. Enjoyed this. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, we certainly did. And, uh, there's a Patreon segment for this show, but it has nothing to do with Lovecraft. It's uh, it's us kind of, you know, uh, poking around in uh, Walter Bosley's mind about all the current UFO stuff going on and his opinions on it. It's, uh, it's a pretty interesting segment. So if you want to become a patron, it's only $3 a month. Go to wheretheroadgo.com, and then uh, you can sign up through there. Just click on the Patreon link. There's also merch and shows going all the way back to the very beginning. And all kinds of stuff on that website that you'd probably not be able to get through in ages. But uh, there's a lot there, so enjoy. We're going to take you out with some Psyche Corporation. Uh, This is Nightmares. We'll see you next time. I'm a monster. monster.
Thank you so much for your support.